0: Easter is April 21st this year, and Easter Sunday is kind of like Super Bowl churches in America. Whether it should be that way or whether it shouldn't be that way, it's just the way it is. Uh, statistically, and we don't really need church growth experts, we know just from being in church over the years, people are more open to come to church on Easter Sunday than any other Sunday of the year. People come to church on Easter Sunday more than on any Sunday of the year, typically, most churches in America, even if you don't emphasize, go out and invite people, that will be a big day. Um, That will be a day when random people in the community will decide, today I want to go to church, and I guess I'll go to that church over there. It'll be a day when those who aren't regularly attending the church but would call this their church home, pretty much most of all of those folks will will try to come on an Easter Sunday. Uh, And so most churches have... That is a, a bigger day. And, and that's good. I mean, it's good to have natural big days to know when they are and to take advantage of them. And that's a, a key thing. We do want to do what we can to take advantage of the openness that people have, their willingness to come to church and to accept an invitation. Uh, again, statistically, around 85% of people say that they that don't attend church say they are open to being invited to church. And if they were invited, they would come. Now, that's that's a statistic. But we know, if you've invited people, you know as well as I do that you can invite somebody to church and they'll say, oh, that's great, I've been looking for a church. Yes, where is it at? What are the times? I'll, I'll be there. And then you don't ever see them in the church. And it just that becomes kind of a long, drawn-out cycle of, oh, I wasn't able to come this week, but maybe next week. And so while most people say that, not everybody does that, but what we want to do, what we want to do in, in inviting people to try to bring them in is we want to make them be able to What well, we want to make it so they cannot say, well, I was never invited to that church. Because really, that's kind of one of the things people say when a lot of times when people are asked in, in studies, why don't you go to church? One of the things that they'll say is, well, I'm not from this community or something like that, and I just, I don't know if I would be welcome there. And if they would be invited, if someone would say, would you come to church with me? They are more open and more apt to come. So we want to take advantage of the openness on Easter Sunday. We want to make sure that nobody around us, nobody that's in our sphere of influence can say, well, I never knew I I I would be welcome at the Free Will Baptist Church. We want to especially emphasize this at, at Easter time when people are more willing. Now the purpose of this isn't just to have a big number in attendance. I mean, we do want to have a big number in attendance. I'm praying for a specific number in attendance. But the number isn't to say, well, look how many people we had. Well, we had 200 people. How many do you guys have in church Sunday? It's not about bragging rights or anything along those lines. The number represents a person. The person is is a soul. And that's ultimately what it's about. We want a big crowd here on Easter Sunday because that crowd is filled with souls, precious souls. That will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. We want to bring them in. And we want to give them every opportunity imaginable. To to experience God's presence with us as we sing God's praises. To see that God matters to us as we come forward and we pray. And we pray for one another and we lift up our needs and concerns during our time of prayer. We want to give them an opportunity to, to hear the gospel. And the message on Easter Sunday, it is just going to be a simple gospel presentation. We are going to start actually in Genesis, and then we're going to go to Revelation and cover why Jesus is the title of the message. And that's all I want to do. Why does Jesus matter? Why should we care about who Jesus is? And the whole point, everything in the message is pointing towards the end when people will be given an opportunity then to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And we want to see souls saved. We want to see prodigals restored. We want to see captives set free. We want to see broken hearts healed. We want to see believers make progress in becoming like Jesus. And and, and church, that's what part of what it's for. So we want to take advantage of everything we can to make this happen in people's lives. So what we're going to do tonight is kind of have a, tonight is our prayer focus, and it's focusing on praying for our Easter service. Broke up into two parts instead of three like we normally have in a prayer service, but the first part is just in why. Why we want to take advantage of the openness for Easter. Why we want to, why we're messing with people, right? Because a lot of lost people, they're, they're perfectly contented in their lives apart from Jesus Christ. A lot of prodigals are perfectly contented in their prodigal lifestyle. A lot of those who are captives, they're really perfectly contented being enslaved by whatever enslaves them. Many of those who have broken hearts have had broken hearts for so long, they can't imagine their hearts being healed. Why then do we bother those people that are contented in their lives as they are Apart from Jesus. That's what this first part is about. The second part. I'm going to give some specific ways to pray for the Easter service. Uh, so nothing that we're talking about tonight's new. But it's good to be reminded of familiar things. So they can weigh heavily on our minds. That the first reason. We want to mess with people so to speak. Is because every unbeliever is under the wrath of God. Jesus said. He who does. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Then John later takes that and he says in that same chapter, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, the first part, Jesus says, and that's really significant to me, because our culture has this false idea of Jesus. But there's a a book written by a guy named Dan Kimball. And it's called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. And it's that, that unbelievers, by and large, will say they like Jesus. But the picture they have of Jesus isn't the Jesus that we find in Scripture. But the Jesus that they like isn't a Jesus that would say he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. And yet... That's what Jesus says. But the world would tell us, well, Jesus just wants you to be happy, or or Jesus just wants you to be good, or, or Jesus just wants you to love people. And as long as you do that, Jesus doesn't care who you believe in or where you find your truth or your light. And yet Jesus says, those who believe in me... Are not condemned. But those who don't believe. Are already condemned. And their condemnation rests on this fact. They have not believed. On the name of the only begotten son of God. John then takes that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says that. Those who don't believe shall not see life. But the wrath of God. Abides on them. Now that is a that is a powerful word picture. The wrath of God abides on them. On them. Now this doesn't mean that there's something that's going to be added to them. At this moment, right now, every unbeliever on the face of the earth is under the wrath of God. I mean, we should picture the wrath of God as being something that is just right over the top of them. And at a, at a moment's notice, that judgment will fall upon them. If we were to use imagery from Jonathan Edwards in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we would say something like that we should picture every unbeliever dangling over the fires of hell by a spider web thin string that could break at any moment, dropping them into eternal damnation. But not only could the string break at any moment, but it most assuredly will. At some point, every person will die. And give an account for their lives. Those who have believed. Will give an account. Before a judgment seat. To determine rewards and crowns. For they go to be with the Lord in glory. Those who have not believed. Will stand before a great white throne. Their name will not be found in the book of life. And they will be cast in the lake of fire. For all eternity. And every unbeliever in the world right now. Is just waiting. Waiting. For that moment when the Lord God of heaven determines their life is over and judgment has come upon them. God can rightly and justly call for the life of any person at any time because He is the Lord over life. And when He determines that life is over and judgment has come, there is no stopping. Nothing is a guarantee Against judgment coming at any time. At a moment's notice. Unbelievers. They are not okay. It doesn't matter how contented they are. Their lives are not fine. It doesn't matter how contented they are. They are not going to be okay. Not in the eternal scheme of things. They are living under the wrath of Almighty God. And one day, He will bring judgment to bear on their lives. And it could be in an instant. It could be on the way home from church. It could be before Easter Sunday. It could be... Well, just Life teaches us this, doesn't it? Life teaches us. Just this week, there was a guy. He was a a rapper. I don't know his name. I just happened to see a headline. He walked out of like a store. And somebody shot him dead. He's rich, he's famous, he was healthy, he was young, just like that. If he wasn't right with the Lord, judgment came in that instant of his life. what I mean just thinking God what's the I don't know if you guys have probably seen the news lately, but been two dead bodies found within not very far of us in our town people murdered in Texas county, one in Texas county, one just over. In Kansas, whatever their lives were, I'm sure that wasn't their plans. And in a moment's notice, judgment came upon them. So they're not okay. Every unbeliever is under the wrath of God. Secondly, every unbeliever must be born again. Familiar story says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him... Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus goes to Jesus for answers. And really before he even gets a chance to, to ask any questions, Jesus gets to the heart of what Nicodemus really needs to know. You must be born again. Now that would have been a shock to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jew. And in this day, and I think probably still today, Orthodox Jews particularly, they would have believed that they were a part of the kingdom of God just by virtue of being a Jew. On the eighth day he was circumcised. He had been raised according to the law. He was a Pharisee living according to the law. Therefore, he was in the kingdom of God. And yet here this guy comes to Jesus. And Jesus' message to him is you must be born again. Or you will not see the kingdom of God. Now we don't typically speak in terms of the kingdom of God. It's an important concept. But not the way we typically think. We think in terms of being saved or going to heaven. So in our context. and With our our thought process on that. Jesus might say to us. That no one is saved. Without being born again. or, Or no one goes to heaven. Without being born again. Or no one is spared from the judgment to come without being born again. Not that every person must be born again. There is no going to heaven, no salvation, no escaping judgment without being born again. Now with Nicodemus, who he was and what he was, it gives us some really, I would say, challenging thoughts. Right? For instance, being religious doesn't save us. Nicodemus was a very religious guy. He was a good Orthodox Jew. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were an exclusive club. You've probably heard this before, but there were only 6,000 Pharisees on the earth at any one time. Um, To become a Pharisee, you had to pledge in front of at least three witnesses to devote your life to observing every detail of the scribal law. Not only the written law of God, but the scribal interpretations of the law. They fasted twice a week. Every week they tied the smallest amount of their income. And yet, despite how religious Nicodemus was, Jesus still said to him and led off the discussion with, You must be born again. Now, something that, that is important for us to see here is that Nicodemus wasn't religious in the wrong religion. He wasn't a Baalite, he wasn't a worshiper of moly. He didn't worship one of the Sumerian gods. He was a worshipper of Yahweh. And yet, despite being a religious, devout follower of Judaism, he was told, you must be born again. So when we see that religion doesn't save, we should see it as being a good Muslim doesn't save you. That being a good Mormon doesn't save you. That being a Jehovah's Witness doesn't. Doesn't save you. Being religious in the wrong religion. Doesn't save. But being religion in Christianity. Without Jesus. Doesn't save either. It's not uncommon to talk to people. And ask them are you saved. And for them to answer. Well I'm, I belong. To this such and such church. Well I was I was baptized. When I was a child. I, I go to church. Sometimes. I'm a very spiritual person person i deeply believe that there is a god and in a wall and all what they're saying is in my own way i'm religious problem is being religious does not save. there's an article i read this week on one of the church leader sites that i follow and it was i can't remember the exact title but the gist of the article was church members die and go to hell there are likely members, people that would call this their church home. And they are religious. They have never truly been born again. And it's not just, it's not our church, it's every church. Every church in the world has people that are a part of that. They were born in it, maybe. They just kind of came because it was convenient for whatever reason. They're part of the church. They're, they would say it's their church. They're religious in some ways. But being religious isn't enough. They must be born again. Being moral doesn't say. Right? Nicodemus would have been a moral person. As a Pharisee, that was a part of who he was. His, his good morals would have been a natural outflow of his, of his religion, his commitment to the law. right? So we could say he was probably a good husband. He was probably a good father. He would have been a, a good neighbor. He would have helped the poor. He would have been honest. He would have been a hard worker. He would have been diligent in these things. And and really anything that you could think of to describe a good moral person would likely fit Nicodemus. Despite his good morals, he was still told you you must be born again. We all know good moral people that don't see a need for Jesus. They are good neighbors. They pay their taxes. They're good parents. They're faithful spouses. They are diligent on their jobs. They are just all around good moral people. Many of them have never even gone out and sowed their wild oats and done the sort of wild riotous living that other people have. And the problem often with people like that is they really don't see why. They need Jesus. Morally speaking, they are as good as any Christian they know. So why do they need Jesus? And the reason they need Jesus is because morals don't save. I mean, being moral is good. We need more moral people. Our world is filled with wickedness and immorality. We need loads more moral people. Morality apart from Christ... It's not saving. It's not doesn't bring the salvation. It must still be born again. And then even being knowledgeable of Scripture doesn't save. In later verses, in verse ten of John three, Jesus is going to call Nicodemus a, a teacher of the law. That was a big statement because to be a teacher of the law, you had. I mean, there were qualifications, serious qualifications. It wasn't just like, I think God's laid a message on my heart. Could I share it? the synagogue tonight. No. Um, To be a teacher of the law, they had to like memorize the first five books of the Bible. Now not like verses out of the first five books of the Bible, but the whole book. So Nicodemus could likely quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a crazy amount of Bible to know. Uh, On top of that, they were the scholars of their day. I mean, that was kind of a part of what they did. They spent their life studying, interpreting, teaching the law. That was all that they did. And despite all the scripture Nicodemus had to have known, Jesus still told him, You must be born again. It's good to have Bible knowledge. But Bible knowledge isn't enough to save someone if it doesn't lead them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Lots of people have been raised in church and Sunday school and have all kinds of Bible knowledge. I have a, a friend who is agnostic or atheist. And I, from what I can gather, he was raised in church. And he knows the Bible really, really well. If you were to sit down and want to share the gospel with him, you had better be on the ball because he knows. And yet that knowledge does him no good because it doesn't lead him to faith in Jesus. He is still agnostic or an atheist, depending, I guess, on kind of what day of the week it is. So while it's good to know Scripture, Bible knowledge alone doesn't save you. must still be born again. And to me those are powerful thoughts because typically... If we're looking to see does someone need to be saved, what do we look at? We, we look at do they go to church anywhere? Are they moral? Do they know some Bible truths? And what we'll do if we're not careful is we'll say, well, yeah, they, they come to our church sometimes or they go to that church or this church. They, For all I can tell, they are good moral people. And they know a little bit about the Bible. They're, they're good to go. And yet if those people have not been born again. They are still lost. Despite their religion. Despite their morality. Despite their knowledge of scripture. Every person must be born again. And then the, the last on this is that salvation is only found in Jesus. Paul says that this is good and acceptable on the side of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. God wants all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. But that salvation, it is only found in Jesus Christ. There is salvation. Nowhere else. Not, again not in religion or morality or Bible knowledge. Not in good works or good deeds. Not in any other religion. But only through Jesus Christ. And again this is an area of what the world would say is not right. The world would say well God wants all people to be saved. So God is going to make exceptions. And God is going to make provisions. God has made provisions. And that provision is Jesus. And Jesus is the only provision there is. Paul says that in Galatians, that if salvation came by the law, then Christ died in vain. That if God was going to make exceptions, then Jesus' death was really a waste of time. And it was a cruel. Cruel thing for the father to do to his son to, to pour out his wrath on him on the cross. And then at some point say, well, but those people in Gaiman are really, I really like them special. I've got a special deal with him and they don't have to be born again. They don't have to believe in Jesus, but they're still going to make it. What an awful thing to do to Jesus. If you were going to make provisions and exceptions. Jesus alone saves. And I know that's a basic thing. We all know that. But that is one truth that has to be ground deep into our hearts. That without Christ, again, go back to what Jesus said. Those who believe in Him are not condemned. But those who don't believe, they are condemned already. The only way to get out from underneath that condemnation, the wrath of God, is repentance and faith in Jesus. So we we unashamedly invite people to church because we know these truths. We know that the wrath of God abides upon them. We know that if they are not born again, they'll not see the kingdom of God. We know that Jesus is the only hope they have and we know that when they come here, whatever else happens here, We will sing songs about Jesus. We will pray to Jesus. We will hear a message about Jesus. And people will be given the opportunity to call on Jesus. And be saved by Jesus. That's why we invite. That's why we pray. That's why we're not bothered or ashamed or or concerned. We have the word of life. And the only hope they have. It's in here. It's in here. It will be here. So we bring them in. We do all that we can to bring them in. So that they can come to know Christ as Savior. So let's take now just a few minutes. And let's pray about these things. Pray and ask God to drive these truths deep into our hearts. Ask God to give you a deep sense of conviction. Just a deep... Reality, awareness, I don't even know the right word. That all people apart from Jesus are condemned. Right? Because within, within all of us, there is a tendency to want to make exceptions. There is a tendency to look at people we like, people we love and say, they're probably going to be okay. And I've said before, That my family, my family, family is probably the biggest way that we do it. Nobody in my family has ever died and went to hell. Every one of them went straight to heaven when they died. They might have died committing a bank robbery. But in that moment from when they were shot to when they fell dead, they repented of their sins, they believed in Jesus, boom, straight to heaven when they died. They might have died in the midst of wicked, grievous sin, Straight to heaven when they die, And that's not because we believe that's true. It's because it soothes our consciences. And the reality is our consciences really don't need to be soothed over this sort of stuff. They need to be disturbed and bothered. It's certain that even those that we care for, even those that we truly, deeply love, if they don't repent of their sins, they will go to hell when they die. Because our soothing our consciences, it doesn't do anything to save them. All it does is give us an easy conscience while we pack them on the way and tell them peace, peace. When there is no peace and the judgment is coming. So pray that God would give us a deep sense of conviction. Give us a a fresh vision of how desperately people need Jesus. And for God to give us many opportunities to invite people to church and tell them about Jesus. Let's take a few minutes and pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. And Lord, we are thankful that your word is clear. Lord, the clarity of the word often makes it difficult, it makes it kind of a bitter pill to swallow. But even with that, Lord, there there is peace and joy and hope in the clarity of what we see. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We don't have to live in uncertainty. We can know. We can know eternal destinations based upon people's faith in Jesus. We can know without question that you want all people to be saved. We can know without question that 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 no one is saved apart from Jesus so that we can boldly talk to them and invite them and pray for them and know we're not doing wrong, Lord. We are doing right and we are doing Your will. So thank You for the clarity. Thank You for the certainty we have in this. Father, give us eyes that would see. That would see, Lord, just see things as they are. That we would see... The world filled with with souls, precious souls that will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. And let that truth, let it weigh on our hearts. Let it prick our hearts. Let us be burdened like Paul was. Let us be burdened like Jesus was. Let us invite people to church. Let us talk to them about Jesus. Let us see people come, Lord. Those that we pray for. Those that we invite. Let them come and bring themselves to you. And Lord, let us see many people saved this Easter Sunday. Not for our glory. But Lord, for your glory, for their salvation. That we would know there is a God who saves. And he loves all people and wants all people to be saved. Work in us and give us these opportunities. Let us see the salvation of souls with our own eyes, let us see the broken hearts healed with our own eyes. Let us see the prodigals restored with our own eyes. Let us see the captives set free. Oh, let make us to see the power of the gospel at work in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, and in this last part, we won't spend much time. We'll just kind of quickly hit some spots. But here's some specific ways to pray. Pray for opportunities to invite people to church. That's an easy thing to do. Um, that's not. That's probably not. That's the least threatening thing way we can invite. We can try to influence people for Jesus. Is just say, do you go to church anywhere? Hey, let me invite you. And even just say, hey, we invite you for our Easter service. I mean, invite them for this Sunday and next Sunday and every Sunday in between. But specifically for that very very non-threatening way to do. Pray for courage to take advantage of every opportunity. Uh, it does take courage to, to invite people, to talk to people like that. Write down the name of two or three people that you want to invite for Easter Sunday and then begin to pray for their salvation. We want to just random opportunities that would come up. Today we had a guy at the house doing some work. And I was him, hey, do you go to church anywhere? He did go to church somewhere, but I, was gonna, I invited him to come. So we just take the advantage of the random opportunities, but also be specific. There are certain people that we know in this town that could come here, so pray for them. Pray that those that we invite will come. It's a big thing. Because lots of people are going to say, Sharon, how many people do you invite to church that tell you they're going to come? I mean, how many just say, no, Sharon, I'm not coming to church? No, they say, yeah, I'll try to come. I'll try to come. So pray that they'll follow through and they'll actually do it. Pray that those who come will come back. One of the big jokes within, of course, just the evangelical church in America is Easter Sunday, you have, maybe have, you know, biggest Sunday of the year. Next Sunday, there'll be 30, 40 people there. I mean, you'll go from... 150 on us Easter Sunday to 50 the next Sunday. Pray they'll come back, and folks will come back and give their hearts to Jesus. Pray that there'll be more visitors than members. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, we want all of our members and regular attenders here, but wouldn't it be great if there were like a hundred first-time visitors that came to church? Um, pray for believers to arrive with a sense of expectation and excitement. For us as believers, our attitude carries a lot of weight. I don't even know how to explain it. I don't even know if I can prove it with the Bible so much. Other than to say, when Jesus went to places, there were some places he could do no big miracles because the people didn't believe. But in other places, he was amazed at their faith and he did big things. Our sense of expectation, what we expect, what we believe God can do, will do, is going to do in our midst, often determines what He will do. So let's pray that as believers, we would believe, we would be excited, we would expect big things. Pray that the unbelievers would arrive with their hearts ready to receive Jesus. They would come already with God at work in their lives. Pray for people to be aware of God's presence in the church, right? Because what we want It's not about them coming and saying, I just love these people. We want them to come and love these people. But they need to know that what's here, they can't find anywhere else. And that's God. Pray that this experience of God's presence, it would cause us as believers to worship passionately, to listen intently, respond immediately. And it would cause the unbelievers to know there's something missing in their lives. And what's missing is Jesus. Pray that we would all have ears to hear and hearts to obey. Pray for the Holy Spirit to powerfully work in our service. That He would guide Scott as He leads the singing, the musicians as they play. That He would anoint me to preach with boldness and clarity. That He would use the Word as a light to dispel darkness. He would use the Word as a sword to bring conviction. He would empower the Word to be a hammer to knock down strongholds so that every thought could be brought captive to the obedience to Christ. For the Word to be Holy Spirit to use the Word like a fire to burn away the junk and the dross of our lives. That He would convict people of sin. Lack of righteousness and the judgment to come. Pray for me as I prepare the message. Right now I have way more than I could use uh, in my sermon. And so there's a lot of that that has to be cut down. Because everything I think needs to go in there is really important. But everything isn't for an Easter Sunday service. So pray that I will know what to take out. That I will understand the passages. Uh, I'll tell you there's a, a horror that comes upon you when you think the Bible means one thing. And as you're preaching you realize you're wrong. And it means something else. So pray that I will know before I get in the pulpit what it means, and I won't take anything out of context. Uh, you don't—I mean, you don't want to twist or distort Scripture. Pray that I will know exactly what God once said, right? Nothing more, nothing less. Pray for the invita- liberty during the invitation for people to respond. Pray that marriages and families will be strengthened and restored. Pray for the souls to be saved, prodigals to be restored, captives to be set free, broken hearts healed. Pray that God would work in mighty ways so that everyone was changed from glory to glory. If there are people maybe that you're going to invite that you know that are in bondage to alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual addictions, any other form of immorality. Pray that they would be delivered. And even if we don't know people that we're going to try to invite, there's almost certain somebody will be here in bondage to these things. So pray that in that day, I mean, I believe. I believe whom the sun sets free is free indeed. I believe that there is freedom in Christ from all of these things. That's a part of captives being set free. Pray that people would be set free. And tell us, right, and tell us about it. There is, a, there is something powerful about a testimony, a personal testimony of Jesus set me free. That builds hope and excitement and encouragement in people's lives. So pray that they would be set free and they would tell us so that we could rejoice with them and be strengthened in our faith. Pray that God would plunder hell to populate heaven and then consider fasting at least one day a week between now and Easter specifically for the Easter service. So what we'll do now is come to the altar to pray or you can pray where you are. I just want you to pray. But pick a few of those, three or four of those to pray specifically about. If you know somebody you're going to invite, be praying about that. Uh, and when you're through praying, we'll be dismissed from there. So when you're through praying, you're dismissed.